What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. And I still felt guilty, so I used and used and used. And very quickly, I ran out of money. I sold my car. I'd been on the sick for work. Six months, they'd stopped paying me. So it was back to thieving. I had no uh, possessions. I'd stolen off my family, stolen off my children. I'd taken money that wasn't mine. Um, so I'm, I'm back in full-blown addiction after having been clean for 10 years. Uh, and I'm worse than I've ever been. Welcome to Stand Up, Speak Up a podcast hosted by Carla Stevens-Tolstoy, bringing a voice to complex, underrepresented issues with a host who is driven by her ability to help others. Stand Up, Speak Up provides a rare look into Carla's empathetic process of connecting with people who are navigating all types of profound life challenges. In the first part of this two-part podcast series, interviewing Frank, an addict who has abused drugs from the age of 12, He told us the origins of his addiction and how sniffing glue as a child turned into full-on heroin addiction as an adult. By his own admission, Frank has done some terrible things, including using his child's stroller to steal from shops so he could fund his addiction. Along the way, he has survived attacks from gangs of drug dealers, a punctured lung, septicemia, stab wounds, and a knee infection that left him wheeling around scoring drugs in a wheelchair. Time and time again, the need to satisfy his addiction was always powerful enough for him to overcome any illness. How do you stay so strong? I know that it's hard for you day to day, but I feel just talking with you and going through the site that you've created, I mean, I feel like you still have like quite a bit of hope and you're, you're working towards solving all this, but God, it must feel so overwhelming. I mean, you just telling me your story, I'm like, oh. Gosh, like, you know, like it's hard yeah, not to think of just jumping in front of a train. I know that sounds so cool yeah, to say, yeah. you know? Yeah, no, I, yeah, I hear you. Yeah, I do. Because I guess, um, and I don't, I know that I'm more than my addiction. I know that when I'm not using and I'm not addicted, I'm, I, I am very loyal, very honest, the best friend. So, and I've seen that side of me, you know, I had a long period of sobriety. That's what I want back. I've had a taste of that. Um, so that gives me hope because I've done it before, but, but more, but more importantly, um, I was on death's door when I went to my sisters in Sweden. That's not an exaggeration. Um, I was close to death a couple more months of my lifestyle and I would have died. Uh, and I'm alive and I'm clean. And I get to sleep every night without using heroin. You know, I don't need to. I get up in the morning. My first thought isn't, oh, God, how am I going to get a score? Who am I going to rip off? Who am I going to rob? Have I got anything to sell? What can I pawn? I get up and I make a coffee. Um, The difference in lifestyle is amazing. So the hope that I have is, I guess, 
I wouldn't even call it hope. It's determination. I, I don't want to exist. I want to live. And my life previously, when I've been using it, has just been an existence. It's been horrible. It's horrific. Um, you know, I've re- really just scratched the surface. But um, I've achieved stuff in my life. And, 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 and I don't mean financially. I just mean in terms of just being a productive person, you know, being an honest person, being what you would class as a normal person if they exist. I mean, I don't know. Um, but that's what I'm aiming for. I'm aiming to get that life back. And I have started, you know, and that's where I'm at now. And I smile. What are some of the memories of things that you experienced or did that, that still haunt you, that still create a lot of anxiety in when you think about it? What, what do you consider as the... Um, now, I have no relationship with any of my children. Okay, as a result of using, uh, which causes me a lot of anxiety. Um, slowly started to build a relationship with my youngest son. And do you think it's possible to reconcile with your kids and to get their forgiveness? That's a big question, and that's, I guess, something that's personal for them. So as it stands at the moment, I have limited contact with my youngest, which is by, by means of messaging. Um, my other older two that aren't biologically mine, but as I say, I've been there all their life. Um, they're not in contact with me at the moment, um, but I still continue to send the old message to them. You know, I reach out to them. Uh, you know, if it's a birthday, I'll, I'll remember to send a card. Um, but they've been through this before with me when I come out of rehab last time that my sister paid for. Um, you know, and I'd relapsed within a week and I'd been three months clean then, admittedly in rehab. Uh, so for them, I think it's going to take a long time. Um, I don't think they're angry with me. Of course they are. I deserted them, you know. Um, How long will it take? I don't know, as long as it takes. Um, But I do have a a belief that it'll be okay just as long as I stay well. Um, And I think it will be. What do you want to apologise to each of them for? Like if there's... if there's something that you feel you've done to each of them independently? Well, I guess for the oldest, it would be to apologise for having walked out and left him to then take up father's role and to look after uh, a broken family. Um, he had to step up to the plate because I deserted them. Um, I don't think that helped him uh, physically or mentally or with his health. Um, he was also looking after his mum uh, at that time because she was drinking as a result of everything that I put her through, you know, and the fact that she's an alcoholic anyway. Um, so he had to step up to the plate, really. Um, so I would apologise for, for for stealing part of his childhood. I mean, he was a young man, you know, 21, 22, but he shouldn't be dealing with that at that age. Um, so his life was turned upside down. To my, young, uh, my middle one, um, he was... I, I was his best mate. Uh, we were very close. Um, I would apologise to him for deserting him and leaving him. Um, <coughs> excuse me. For my youngest son, I walked out on him when he was doing his exams, uh, most important period of his life. Uh, he's very intelligent. He did very well at school. Um, but I believe he could have done a lot better uh, had he had not been going through the trauma that he was going through. Um with me having walked out uh, and him living on his own at this point then with his mum who was drinking. Um, So my addiction and my walking out has left a broken family um, and it's broken. 
and that's what I would apologise for because I, I I stole everything that they had, and I don't mean uh, material things. I mean I stole their family from them through my actions. You know, we were a normal 2.4 children. You know, a normal functioning family. You know, uh, one of my sons is a uh, he's got his own business. He's a qualified plumber. Another son's got his own business in IT. Uh, my youngest son, um, you know, he's going to go to university. Um, they're, they're good lads, they're clever lads, but, but this is going to have scarred them. Um, there's a lot of stuff that I need to apologise to them for. Um, and I couldn't do it all here and now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess it's a start. And then what about to your other kids? Well, my daughter, um, that's a completely different kettle of fish. Um <sighs> I'm in the process of trying to write a letter to her at the moment, um, which I've wrote a number of times uh, and ripped it up because I don't quite know where to start, but I know that I'm the dad and it's my responsibility. Uh, she's the child, so it's for me to try and put right. Um, so if I was going to apologise to my daughter, um, that would be really, I guess, my apology to my daughter would be for abandoning her when she was a child for allowing her to be adopted. Uh, and whilst we had contact throughout, um, she was still always adopted. She never come and live with me and my partner and my, my children. Um, I would apologize that she felt left out, that she felt abandoned, that she felt that I picked children that were not mine, that were not biologically mine over her, um, which wasn't the case, but I'm sure if I was her, that's how I would feel. Um, and to my son, who I've never seen, uh, my apology to him uh, would be, I'm sorry that, that I don't know you. I'm sorry we didn't get the chance to get to know each other. I'm sorry that, you know, you were moved along before I ever got to see you or know you or have a relationship with you um, because I've never met him. I've never seen him. I mean, that's a lot of stuff to carry with you. Yeah, it is. It is, and, and there's a lot of stuff that I've generated myself as well through the lifestyle that I had and the things that I've done um, in order to survive. Uh, I've got a lot of baggage. Yeah, there is. There's an awful lot of baggage. I, but I, I mean, also believe very strongly. Sorry, go on. No, I, I just think if I had seen you on the streets, would I have felt that you could have gotten from beyond that? Do you know what I mean? Like, no. you're, you're the way you've... you've painted your life I just think wow like how did you make it past that when so many others don't like something's on your side yeah that's my sister partly uh, she never gave up um, she knew that I was dying she knew that I'd given up she knew that as a result of losing my family um, I say family I mean my partner and my children uh, she knew I, I'd given up on myself um, I was passively committing suicide uh, so one thing that I'm grateful for is she never gave up. Um, she was always there, even when I didn't want her to be, and I'd ignore her calls, you know, and I, I wouldn't talk to her. Um, but she paid for me to go into rehab, and I come out and relapsed. Um, and like I explained, I was worse this time, and that's why she agreed to, to let me go to a house uh, to detox, which is massive because I've stolen off her loads of times. You know, I've robbed a house in the past. It was a massive risk that she was taking. Often it takes not only one person who cares, but a group to come together and help someone who was on a path to self-destruction. A standout individual in Frank's group was his sister, 
who never gave up on him and always did what she could to drag him from the quagmire. Frank's relapse after 10 years of sobriety was no exception, and she gathered all her resources to bring back the man she had seen flourish outside of the grip of addiction. She must be just an amazing person. I mean, she went into a discipline where she takes care of others, right? And I've done a lot of bad stuff to my sister that I've not touched on of, you know, just because we'd be here for, for 50 hours or so. Um, but she's never given up. She's never given up. And she knew, she knew that I was dying. Um, I mean, the hospital admissions, you know, they were getting serious. Um, I was very malnutritioned. I was, you know, nine stone. Um, my proper weight is 14 stone. Um, I wasn't eating. Um, I've got emphysema, you know, lung condition, got a DBT, um, I've got a hole in one of my lungs and then not eating and then using the amount of drugs that I was using. She knew that I was going to die. Um, and I knew that, um, I'd resign myself to that in many respects. It would have been a relief. I didn't have the courage to commit suicide. Um, and nor would I, nor would I, um, cause it's just not the sort of person that I am, but I knew that that's exactly what was happening. I knew that I was dying, um, uh, and I'd be dead if it weren't for my sister. So that's how I got through it. Is my family, my sister? She didn't give up on me, um, uh, and not just my sister. You know, my, my younger brother too. You know, um, he's done so much for me too. In fact, all of my family have in, in different ways. You know, my brother in the states, he paid a quarter towards my, uh, my rehab fees when I went into rehab. Um, you know, eighteen months ago. Uh, because they've all seen a massive change. You know, they've seen Frank the addict, the messed up kid, uh, the person in and out of jail, always in trouble, to them becoming someone who had a career, you know, responsible, children, family, to going right back to who he was before, but so much worse. Um, my family identified that and saw how serious it was. And my sister knows me very well, even though we don't speak. She knew I'd given up on myself. Um, I was waiting to die um, because addiction is hell. And, you know, I didn't have the strength to stop at that time. I couldn't get out of it. Um, I didn't want to stop using. If I'm honest with you at that time, I couldn't see any way out. Um, so it's my sister uh, who I have a lot of gratitude for. Uh, and also family and friends as well. Because my life was out unmanageable and I couldn't even get my shit together to go and get a photograph for a passport you know I was given the money for that I spent it people had to come and physically pick me up and drive me to locations and make sure that they brought money with drugs to in order so I could score before I would go and do what they wanted me to do because I was beholden to drugs you know I couldn't function without having used um so and my sister you know she financed a lot of this you know and she would never enable me she'd never buy me drugs uh, but she realised there's no way I would get over to Sweden right. on the plane without having that to use. Yeah, well, yeah. you'd be detoxing on the plane, and that would be horrible for everybody involved. And could get I, I, I just kicked off. Gone. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have even gone. Um, she arranged it in such a way that she paid for a hotel the night before uh, I was due to fly over to Sweden because I'd just been released from police custody for a burglary. Um, because I thought I was going to get sent to jail, but I got bail. Um, she paid for a hotel. Uh, she gave me a couple of hundred quid to score the next day so I could have enough drugs for the drive down to the airport and then to use before I got on the plane. Uh, because if I'd have woke up that day without that money, 
I wouldn't have been coming to Sweden. I'd have been out looking to earn some money um, because, you know, I was in active addiction and that's what addicts do, they use. Do you think it's different this time? Yeah, or, or I know it is. Why this time is it different? I, my brother asked me this question, strangely enough, and as you can probably imagine, I've spouted lots of stuff over the past about why it's different this time and I've actually meant what I've felt. But it's different this time because I'm different. Um, it sounds very corny, um, but that's the truth. I'm different. I actually feel free. Um, I remember a moment when I, I felt free. Um, it's on, on, on my uh, website, you know, on my, uh, com. I was stood in the kitchen making a cup of tea uh, and I had a feeling of serenity. Uh, first time I've felt that in a very long time. Uh, and it wasn't a thought, it was a feeling. I felt it in my stomach, I felt it in my chest. Um, and it was one of relief. It was like I finally realised I'm I'm not addicted to heroin and crack. I'm actually free. Um, and it was a... I don't know if I'd go as far as saying it was spiritual. Um, I'm not a very spiritual or religious person, if I'm honest with you. Uh, but it was something that I've not uh, had happen to me before. Um, so... so I guess I grabbed onto that with two hands, uh, the realisation that I'd finally done it and I was free and I felt calm and I felt good. Um, and that's it really. Um, my attitude's different. I want different things um, for myself. Um, and I know how lucky I am to be alive. And I know I don't have another relapse in me. If I relapse, I'll die. Um, I'm under no illusions. Um, that's, you know, the white and black of it is that when I use, I use really hardcore um, there are no boundaries um it's it's manic using uh, it's out of all proportion um but that's not enough to stop me using uh consequences because if that was the case having gone to jail and having gone through what i'd gone through wouldn't stop me using it's different because i feel different and I, I had my first example of that the other day you know i had to hand myself into the police um i was wanted for a number of offenses uh through the lifestyle that i was living uh, before i got clean um, I left the country while I was on bail uh, at two different courts. So um, I had to go to court the other day um, with the very real possibility of going to jail. Um, and that's living life on life's terms, you know, and that's a consequence for my actions. Uh, but I went there positive. Not positive because of what I'd done, but positive because I was clean. Um, and I handed myself in, you know, and, and I didn't go to jail. I'm sat here talking to you on the phone now. Uh, so it's now it's about living life on life's terms because life can be shit sometimes. Yeah, uh, I mean that's that's for sure, and I think that you've seen a lifetime of shit, to be honest. Yeah, there's been a lot of shit. There has. There's been a lot of shit, but then I guess everybody goes through some sort of shit in different varying levels. Um, yeah, uh, so it's more about the future now. Frank's looking forward to the future. I'm not looking in the past. I'm trying to drag one foot forward after the other. Uh, I'm trying not to let my past define me. Um, I could sit and get really depressed about how hard it's going to be for me to get a job with my criminal record and, you know, it's going to be impossible to earn a living and how am I going to fill my time with work? Um, but I don't allow myself to feel or think like that. I remember what I need to be grateful for and that's because I'm breathing because that's the reality of it. I'm alive. Um, and I don't think I would be now if I hadn't have gone to Sweden. And to be honest with you, my past, I mean, yeah, there's been a lot of shit, but um, I'm okay with it. 
I'm okay with it. It's it's what's happened. I can't change the past. There's nothing that I can do about it. Um, and this will sound really corny, but I've forgiven myself uh, because until I did that, uh, that was a massive problem uh, because guilt is a massive relapse potential and I've relapsed on oh guilt God. a number of times. Guilt and shame, it's like our own worst enemy. Yeah, yeah. So I, I had to forgive myself, um, which is sounds really ironic, really, because I should be asking for other people's forgiveness. But that's what's working for me at yeah. the moment. We wanted to take a moment to tell you about how you can support what is being accomplished on the Stand Up, Speak Up podcast. Please leave a review on this platform. And of course, we're always open to suggestions and ideas for guests. We're always listening on Facebook at Stand Up, Speak Up podcast. Now, back to part two of Frank's story. Frank knows he has a lot to be grateful for, and he knows that he has seriously hurt a lot of people throughout his life. People for whom he should have been the rock that held them together. These people wanted him to be the man they all knew he could be, but he let them down time and time again. He will never be done with his addiction. He will always be in recovery, and the best he can hope for is to manage his addiction and fight the urge to use again. Yeah, I mean, I it, I guess the cravings never end. Do they ever end? Do you ever stop craving? Um, definitely, yeah. I mean, did for me. Uh, when I had that long period of being clean for 10 years, I never thought about drugs. It got to the point where, um, because addiction drugs, are, you know, there's the same thing, but yet they're different as well, because, you know, addiction affects you on many different levels. It doesn't just have to be drug-related, you know. It can be food, gambling, whatever. Um but I got to the point where I never used to, to think about uh, using heroin or crack uh, when I had my long period of being clean. Uh, it was literally like the monkey had you know, gone off my shoulder uh, without sounding corny. Um, it, I never thought about it. You know, I was working. I had a good job. I was being productive. Um, I was free. Um, so, yeah, it does leave you. I mean, and the cravings, as, my, as I understand it, they're only when you're going through withdrawal. Um, as in, you know, the cravings to use heroin, um, it's more after when you're clean. I guess you could call it cravings, but I don't know. Is it desire? Is it want? Um, you know, uh, because for me personally, I, I only really craved heroin when I was using heroin, if you know what I mean. When you were working and you would get stressed or like your day would go really badly, how would you cope? Really badly, if I'm honest with you. Um, I never used to talk about what was going on at work. I had an agreement with my ex-partner uh, that we didn't discuss work when I got home because it was always stressful. Um, it was quite a stressful environment. So I used to do what I always do, and I just used to block it out. I'm very good at uh, sticking things in boxes and, and ignoring them, um, which is a really bad character trait because obviously stuff comes back up after a while. Um, but I just used to bury my head in the sand as regards that. So I didn't used to get stressed. I'm not the sort of person to get stressed, if I'm honest with you. I've got quite a laid-back nature. Um, it takes an awful lot for me to get stressed. Um, but I'm one of them people, when I do get stressed, when I do pop, I, I pop really bad. Um, so it's kind of like bottling everything down, and then eventually it explodes. Um, but I'm chilled out a lot of the time. I don't get stressed. I'm quite fortunate that way. Did you ever think of just getting a really simple job, a job that doesn't 
that won't get you stressed? Like just I did, yeah, I did, um, but I couldn't afford to uh, because you know I'd bought a house, I had a mortgage, I had children, I had outgoings, um, and I was earning a good wage. Uh, and our lifestyle had become accustomed to the ways that I was earning, you see. Uh, so I was trapped. I, I wanted to start my own business uh, in IT because um, I'm good with IT. Uh, but I never really, I, I didn't dare take that leap, if you know what I mean, because I had commitments and responsibilities. And when you're starting a business off, you don't make a lot of money in the beginning, you know, and it's not something I could have done part to, part time. So I couldn't really change my job, if I'm honest with you, Carla. I, w- I was stuck. Um, or that's how it felt. Uh, because I've been such a bad parent and partner previously before I got well, um, I felt beholden to continue to make sure that, you know, I, I was the breadwinner, you know, and it become an obsession almost to make sure that I provided for my family because it was something that I hadn't done previously. Um, so I got quite obsessive over it and money became quite a big part of, of my life, not in terms of wanting to be rich, but just wanting to make sure I could give them what I hadn't given them previously. Um, guilt, really, I guess, you know. Um, and, and and So no, I, I didn't uh, move jobs because I, I didn't feel I could. Do you think that doing your own business is something you would consider now? Yeah, it's something that I've started doing. Um, it's something that's going to take a long time, uh, but if I want any I think decent standard of living where I earn a, a half decent wage. Um, I'm going to find getting employed really difficult because of my criminal record, especially because of the uh, the relapse, you know, two years ago. Um, as you know, I've just been in the court system. So that kind of limits the type of work that I can do. Um, not every job do criminal record checks, but um, manual work, they don't. But of course, I've, I've got some health issues. I've got emphysema. Um, so I wouldn't be able to do a full day's manual work. So for me, uh, trying to start off my own business is, is is something that I'm doing and I'm in the process of doing. Uh, and I've also got the website going, um, you know, that I mentioned previously with the videos on it and the writings, and I'm trying to commit more time to that and doing more writings and more blog posts. Um, and I don't really know where my, uh, what direction my career is going to go in. Um, but I'm going to try and do something, um, you know, and I've got some ideas. And as I say, we'll see what happens. I won't get my hopes up because it's not easy. <laughs> uh, but um, I think working for myself, as long as I stay motivated, uh, as long as I make sure that I put the day's work in, um, I'm hoping I might be able to, to, to make some money somehow so I can uh, get my own place and not continue stopping at my brother's. Well, I sent you, you know, the article this week and I thought maybe we could talk about that and it was an article of someone that had gone through detoxing heroin and just shared yeah. some of their experiences and I just wanted to know how how relevant that was to you and you know I thought maybe we could talk about that and you could actually talk about um, the types of things he says and just say and say how that also was the same experience for you the crack um, five unexpected things I learned from being a heroin addict. So uh, the first thing that I see is addiction is an instant. Uh, that makes it worse. It's a, uh, that's a law. You take one hit and you're hooked. Well, that's obviously not true. Okay. What does it take to become... I think um, people don't start off on heroin, not in my experience. 
uh, it's not something that people choose to do. You, know, you don't wake up and think, right, I'm going to be a you know, smackhead or a heroin addict. Uh, for me, it's a progression. Um, there's usually other drugs involved first, in my experience. Um, and it's not, you know, one hit and you're addicted. It's quite the opposite. You know, when I first used heroin, I used it for quite some time uh, without uh, having any withdrawals, uh, without realising that I was addicted to it. Um, and I enjoyed it, you know. Um, it's not all doom and gloom. Otherwise, there wouldn't be people that are addicted to heroin because you wouldn't do it more than once if it was horrible. Um, you don't start off on a needle taking heroin. Um, I don't know anybody ever who started taking heroin by injecting it. And I know a lot of people that abuse heroin. Um, it's usually taken, you know, initially by smoking it. Um, the needle bit comes or came for me, uh, in all honesty, when I was ill, I was withdrawing, I had no money, uh, and I was offered a fix. And it was make a decision, you know, this person's not going to share it with me to smoke, they inject it. So either, you know, I have an injection of it or I continue feeling the way I felt. I made that decision in a split second. Uh, you know, that was the hold of an addiction for me. Uh, the withdrawals, um, I don't know, it's hard to explain, but the, it's the fear of the withdrawals as well, not just the withdrawals. Um, and that was, you know, that was how I progressed onto needles. Um, but I smoked it first for quite some time. And, and after I used it that first time in the needle, that didn't mean, all right, okay, I'm going to continue injecting heroin, because I didn't. You know, I continued to smoke it when I could. It was something that I progressed to over time. Um, and, and that was for a number of different reasons, but mainly it was because heroin is expensive um, and you can use less when you inject it initially. Um, and that was the reason behind me. It was more financial than anything. I couldn't afford to keep smoking it. Um, so that's my answer to that, I think. Um, I'm just flicking through the through well, the page the now. The thing they kind of talk about is, you know, the, the writer is saying um, everybody gets um, blackened limb rot and abscesses, and it's not so unique like they say in the movies. It's it's not such a no, big deal where they get rushed to the hospital. So what what would you say with that? I would say that's complete and utter. I'm not going to swear, but yeah, that's just not true. Um, I injected. Uh, you know, amphetamines for you know quite a long time before I started injecting heroin, and I injected heroin for years and years. I didn't get any abscesses. I didn't have any problems whatsoever um, medically. Um, you know, uh, there were times when I was injecting in my neck because you know my veins were that bad. I, I couldn't get a vein, uh, so I hadn't started injecting in my uh, you know in my groin at this period. So I was injecting in my neck. Uh, and I never got any infections, you know, I, I didn't get these big black marks that you see in the movies. Uh, the only mark that I would get was if I missed the vein and I pushed the substance in. Um, and that's because it wasn't in the vein and obviously you'd end up with a lump. Um, so um, I, I got my first infection from using drugs uh, actually when I relapsed after my uh, 10 years being clean. Um, and I think that's because I, also I was older as well when my body doesn't repair as fast, but also because I was using in the same site probably 20, 30 times a day, not giving it time to heal. Um, and that's when I got an infection. Um, so that's something that I worked up to. <laughs> it's not something that you start off with. Uh, I think that's probably scaremongering. Would you see a lot of people have infections though? I mean, was it very common to see people with infections? 
that you would um, do drugs with? Have you ever thought, I'd love to have a podcast just like this one? Well, I can help. My name is Matt Kundal, and everyone at my company, the Sound Off Podcast Network, had a hand in making this show. Whether it was about the sound, the discoverability, or that you're just enjoying the show, we are all about the detail. If you think you have a podcast in you, reach out to me via email, matt at soundoff.network. Or check out the website and become one of the great podcasts we work with at soundoff.network. Uh, sometimes, you know, I see people with legs amputated occasionally. Uh, sometimes people would have an infection. Um, you know, I remember one guy, it was that bad. You know, he couldn't even get on the bus or the tram because the smell was that bad. Uh, people would get off. You know, it was really embarrassing for him. But this wasn't often. This was few and far between. Um <sighs> when you get I don't know about in America but in the UK when you use a needle exchange program um, you go there they give you all the equipment it's all new you get the alcohol swabs assuming that you use them correctly um, the risk of getting infection is really low actually you know if you clean the area before you inject with alcohol and you use clean equipment um, it's unlikely you're going to get an infection if you do it's going to come from the substance did you always go to safe injection sites where there are enough available for you um, yeah, what I used to do is I, I um, one thing I can say um, that I haven't done is I've never shared equipment. Um, uh, it's I, I, only because I used to pick up each time a hundred, so I'd pick up a hundred needles, you know, a hundred uh, amps of water, a hundred swabs, you know, alcohol wipes, um, and I was quite organised in, in in because I was always in various city centres stealing. The needle exchanges were always in the city centres, so it was quite easy. For me, if, if I'd done something wrong or I'd stole something, I'd usually go to one of the needle centres to get new needles. So I always had clean equipment, is what I'm trying to say. Um, it was something that I, I kind of make sure. I was using the needle centres to hide away a lot of the time, but also getting needles, uh, you know, and then coming back out half an hour later or so. Um, uh, but now they've put limits on the UK, you know. Um, for some strange reason, you can only get six, which I think is stupid. It, 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 in my opinion, it forces people or it makes it m- more easier that people are going to share equipment. I don't understand the logic behind that. Um, but, you know, that's a so do you, do, you believe in, do you believe that the injection sites are, are of value and that they should continue? And Yeah, definitely, of course. Yeah, because otherwise what you're going to have are a lot of addicts with hep C and hep B and AIDS and all types of different infections because they can't get their hands on the equipment that they need. You know, and regardless of whether they want to get well or not get well, you know, make it as safe as we possibly can. You know, give them the equipment that they need. Um, Because they're going to do it anyway. Yeah, okay, that comes by next question. Knowing that you could um, get infections and get sick, does that prevent you at all with your addiction? Do, Do those scare tactics work? No, never. Not once. Not ever. My education on drugs uh, at school was just say no. Um, it was something that they ran in the UK, uh, and it was basically just say no. Drugs are bad for you. You'll be addicted, and they'll kill you. Uh, one hit, and you'll be dead. And that was, uh, you know, the education that I had. So I knew that that wasn't true. So anything else that I heard from that point onwards, I, I didn't believe. If I'm honest with you, um, and the risk of getting infections, um, you know, and the risk of a having a bad hit, so to speak. Well, 
uh, I didn't even know what a bad hit was until I had one, in all honesty. Uh, there is no education in the schools in terms of the real life stuff that goes on with addiction. It's scaremongering, it's trying to, uh, it's not educating people, it's trying to scare people, which is completely different. Uh, so for me, I think we should be as open with you know people at addiction um, rather than trying to scare them off it because people are going to do it anyway, you know, um, so educate people so they can do it safely. And hopefully with the education, you know, they might make the decision not to. Um, but scaremongering doesn't work. It didn't work for me. Uh, and it hasn't worked for all the other addicts that I know that are in the UK that have been through the education system. Um, so the fear of getting infections? No, definitely not. It didn't worry me in the slightest. And by this point, whilst, when I'm injecting, I wouldn't have cared. Because at that point, you know, I, I, I was in active addiction. And there was only one thing that was important, and that was getting a hit and having a fix. So it, it wouldn't have made any difference either way at that point. Well, the next point that he kind of talks about is the effects it had on his physical body. And one is that he said, when you're in active addiction, you know, your smell isn't the same, sounds get muffled, mm. your body is numb, yeah. you lose the ability to orgasm. Is, would you say that's all correct? Very true. Yeah, very true. Um, for me, <clears throat> I um, physically, um, I've, I've been in hospital a lot of times. I've been some a lot of stuff. You know, my using, um, I've had you know infections, blood infections, septicemia. Um, you know, I nearly died from that. Um, I've got emphysema of the lungs. Um, I've got lots of different health things. So. They were things that happened to me as a result of using heroin. But in terms of the normal everyday things, um, yes, you lose the ability to orgasm. Um, but also, um, everything is almost fuzzy and hazy. That would be my description of it. So it's almost like you're not paying as much attention to everything. But it's not that. It's that your senses are dumbed down, um, which is the reason that I was using heroin. You know, I didn't deal with crap that had gone on in, in my life. Um, I've suppressed a lot of stuff since the age of 12 uh, and as I went through the different drugs you know you, you get to a point where you get a really high tolerance and they don't seem to do what you were using them for um, and for me heroin just shut me down you know it just turned me off um, so it was a mental thing too for me it allowed me to not think which is exactly what I wanted to do I didn't want to think but more importantly it allowed me to not feel um, because for me personally, when I actually used heroin, I didn't really have any emotions at all. I never really experienced, you know, happiness or sadness or I didn't have, you know, you'd be, you'd be with your friends and you'd be laughing and it'd be a belly laugh, you know, and you're really having a good laugh. Um, I didn't have anything like that when I was using because it just switched me off, uh, heroin did. It just turned me into a bit of a zombie, um, which is why I used it. That's what I wanted from it. I didn't want to be me. Uh, so that's why I used it. When you compare sniffing gasoline and and paint thinner, what drug does that compare to as the same feeling? I've not taken another drug that's made me feel like sniffing glue, if I'm honest with you. Um, glue is something that is uh, very hard to describe. Um, I've not taken another drug that I could compare it to. Um, but what I would say about it is I was totally out of control. I have no recollection of what I was doing when I was using glue. Um, and a lot of the time, it would be just for the whole day. And before I would know it, you know, it, 
it would be night time uh, and I would have been sniffing glue all day and mm. I would just literally be buzzing all over my body and, and my head swelling um, but it was a nice feeling and that sounds strange but it was it was better than feeling and is this frank just, is this know. glue that you can get from the school or like just everyday glue that I would use to fix stuff around the house or no do... it's 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 a strong glue it's um it has to be um a high, you know high solvency based uh so it was a I mean I don't want to mention brands and I don't even know if if, if you know but it's the super glue types that you will okay. get in the tub yeah it's a type of stuff that really would stink your house out uh, if you used a bit of it in your house it's very toxic wouldn't that give you like a horrible headache um it, it does at first yeah it does um it, it does but um it, it was better than feeling uh, how i felt um, okay it was just a yeah it was just a different place to be it, i didn't have to be me anymore you know i could be somewhere else and switch off in the first episode frank talked about being attacked by a group of drug dealers to whom he owed money but the fact that he put himself in that position gives the impression that he no longer cared about himself and just wanted it all to end. But as you said, was that at the time when you didn't care if you lived? Yeah, I, I um, that's exactly where I was. This is where my last re relapse took me. Um, it was so much worse because I'd been clean for such a long period of time. And I'd built up, you know, my own home and my family, and then I'd lost everything. Um, and I, I had all the feelings of guilt of walking out on my family and my children because I was a heroin addict again. Um, I didn't want to feel, so I spiralled out of control. Um, I was using as much drugs as I could every day, uh, heroin and crack together at the same time, um, which took me to a completely different level as opposed to when I've been using drugs previously. The crack made it so much worse. Um, I found that I was committing crimes that I'd never committed in addiction previously. Uh, you know, I wouldn't have considered robbing dealers uh, in the past. I'd have been too scared to. Um, but at this point in, you know, in my addiction, um, I didn't care. Um, I didn't want to commit suicide. Um, I, I didn't want to do that. But I knew that the life I was living, I knew I was going to end up dead, um, either from malnutrition um, not eating and being extremely underweight or from being killed as a result of drugs in some way, form or another. Uh, and my sister knew this too. You know, she spotted this too. And this is why she offered me uh, the chance to detox at her house. Um, and the doctors had said in the hospital, you know, we're giving six months. You know, it's not, I wasn't in, in the best physical condition. Um, I've had a lot of hospital admissions. Um, and I think I mentioned previously, I've left a number of times and not complete a treatment um, because I needed to score. You know, I wanted to score um, and I didn't want to, I didn't want to get well at that period in time. I just wanted to get out of my face um, and I had no hope. Um, I didn't see any way back. So I'd resign myself to the fact that I would die at some point. Um, so all my whole day, uh, every day was just focused on getting money, scoring, using, and then starting that process again. Um, and it was a, a very dark place to be, and I'm, I'm really grateful that I made it out. And that sounds dramatic, but um, it's the reality. I very nearly died on more than one occasion. Do you consider using Suboxone or, or Methadone um, to keep the cravings? How do you feel about Suboxone and Methadone? 
I think that if I'm honest with you, everybody's different and everybody recovers in a different way. Um, and I don't have all the answers. Um, I, when I got clean for 10 years, that was using methadone. That was um, how I managed to get that sobriety. So for me, yes, methadone's really addictive um, and the withdrawals are a lot worse than coming off heroin. They last a hell of a lot longer um, and it's in your body a lot longer. But it helped me, methadone, to step away from the life of an active addict. So I was able to disassociate with people who were using and dealers, not withdraw, use a heroin and try and get a normal life. And that was what led me to my career. You know, when I got employed, I was still on methadone doing an invisible reduction so personally for me it worked um but for other people it doesn't work and suboxone is a drug that i haven't used in detox um but i know a lot of people who have and i say the same i say we're all different you know everybody recovers differently not everybody does it cold turkey not everybody goes into rehab not everybody can do it on methadone um so i think there's a place for all these different types um i think the problem that we've got is in the uk the drug services will just stick you on a methadone prescription. Um, they're overrun. And what happens is within a year, um, the drugs worker will try and take you off it and they'll reduce it too quickly. And I had that happen to me a lot of times. So I'd start withdrawing and get down to a certain amount. Uh, so then I'd use, you know, and that was a repeated cycle. So I do think there is a place for them drugs, but I think um, they're really dangerous. Uh, but then being a heroin addict is, is worse, in my opinion. You know, it, it's easier to live taking methadone than it is to be in living the life of an active heroin addict. I think it's a lot more dangerous. What does it feel to be on methadone and suboxone from, from what you've experienced and what you've heard? I mean, like, how, okay. how does it work exactly? So methadone for me, um, because my uh, addiction before I got clean was really high, I was using very high amounts. I was given a very high amount of methadone. I was given uh, 80 mils, which is quite a lot, if I'm honest. And I was given what's called a maintenance prescription uh, because they tried to take me off it so many times and I'd relapsed. I got a drugs worker in the end who agreed, yeah, you're going to be dead. So we'll just let you have the methadone and you tell us when you want it to cut down. And I said, I will. And what that did for me was it just stopped me withdrawing. I got no effects off it at all. I didn't get, I wasn't nodding. I didn't feel high. I didn't, you know, I was driving a car. I was going to work. I was being productive. I didn't get any kind of feelings um, of being high. It, it didn't work like that for me. You know, uh, maybe if I had took loads a lot more, it might have. Uh, but for me, it just allowed me to function just like a normal person who isn't addicted to a substance who starts withdrawing. All it did is made me feel normal. Um, does, it say normal. Like, does it give you a better peace of mind? Does it give you calmness? Does it give you oh, better God, focus? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, it, it suppresses feelings, <laughs> definitely. Um, so when I was caught, when I was on methadone, um, because I have an issue with feelings, um, I don't like them. Um, they frighten me, you know, and they have in the past. So I've used um, in order not to feel, and methadone does do that for me. Um, it does block out feelings. There is a, a numbness to it, um, but like you just uh, you know described, there's also a calmness too. Um, so. For me, it wasn't a feeling of being high, but there was a disassociation from my feelings. Um, it was like I was able to keep everything bottled down still. Um, and I know this because when I was coming off the methadone, um, which was done what you would call an invisible reduction, so I was given the same amount, but I didn't realise strength, what strength it was. Um, I started 
getting quite emotional at times, quite sad, uh, quite happy, quite extremes, actually, uh, and couldn't understand what was going on uh, because I didn't realise, because it was this invisible reduction, that I wasn't actually taking methadone anymore. Um, so it definitely helped me in one respect, um, but I didn't deal with anything while I was taking methadone because everything was suppressed. Well, what, so what, there's the pluses and the minuses. But what happens when it's not in your system and you're experiencing the range of emotions? How do you cope with that? Um, in the past, uh, I've never been able to cope with it. When everything has come back flooding all at once, um, I've, I've not dealt with it um, and I've used um, because I've got so much suppressed stuff. Um, that I've not dealt with, uh, it had all start coming up to the surface. Um, so my go-to default behaviour would be, oh, I don't like this. Um, I think I'm going to go and get high. Uh, sorry, what was the question, Carla? <laughs> I'm really sorry. No, I, I just think, like, it's just interesting how you said, you know, and I think emotions scare a lot of people. Like, I think that's, that's what drives addiction is, right? Everybody wants to escape. And so yeah. how, how, do you teach, how do you teach an addict to be okay with their feelings and embrace different emotions? And... Um, do you know what? That's a really good question. And, you know, when you work out the, the answer to that, I think you'll become rich. <laughs> yeah. I really do. I think that's a really good question. Um, I've been in lots of different rehabs and it's hard, you know, there'll be 12 step programs, there'll be different types, there'll be detox facilities, but it's all centered around uh, addiction and, and withdrawal. So, you know, getting clean, uh, going through the withdrawals. And then if it's a 12 step treatment facility, you know, working the steps, so to speak, um, there isn't really any, as far as I can remember, I've never, and I've done rehab a lot of times, but I've never really been done any workshops or done any work uh, as regards my feelings. Um, I've been in quite a few rehabs. I've never had a one-to-one -one with a counsellor sat down, you know, in, and, and spoke about, you know, the sort of stuff that we're talking about now, about feelings and stuff. I don't know if that's a funding issue. I, I don't know what it is. Um, so I think that's probably the place where you ought to start trying to teach addicts how to cope with the feelings as if they're in rehab and stuff. But my experience is that hasn't happened. Um, a lot of them here, I don't know about in America, but they're businesses, they're privatised. They, they want you in and out um, and they want the money um, because there's a lot of money in addiction because there's a lot of us who are unwell. Well, it, you know, it just makes me think a little bit, you know, when you were working for that company and they would have given you a good um, healthcare package, did that included free therapy and would you have used that? No, I wouldn't have, if I'm honest with you. And yes, it did. I could have accessed some services if I wanted to. Um, but while I was working for them, um, I didn't, I guess, I, I was, life was good. You know, I was happy. Um, so I, I do what I usually do. I didn't want to deal with the past. I was able to block that out. I could have accessed therapy, I guess, um, but I didn't do. Um, and I wouldn't have, if I'm honest with you, because I'm usually a really private person um, and I never speak to people about what's going on for me as a person. Um, I can have superficial conversations with people all day long and I'm really good at supporting other people. 
Uh, but when it comes to me and what's going on for me, I find it really hard uh, to speak. The reason this is easy is because it's anonymous. Um, and it's over the phone. I'd really struggle with this conversation with the therapist. <laughs> so I don't think I would have accessed it, if I'm honest with you. Um, and I was brought up, you know, by my dad's feelings. You know, blokes don't feel. You know, that's the women. Um, my, my dad was a, a big Scottish burly man, um, brought up, you know, he's, I mean, he's 85, 86 now. So um, we were taught very early when my mum died not to feel, you know, because my dad couldn't cope with it. So that's something, you know, that I've inherited from him. So I don't think I would have accessed therapy. This interview with Frank over the last two podcasts has really opened our eyes to the kind of life a person is forced to lead once they become an addict. Turning to drugs or alcohol is a means of escape for so many, and such was the case for Frank. Being encouraged to talk about his feelings from a young age would have helped Frank and so many others like him, creating that safe, open space where people can talk to one another about what they are feeling is so important to all of us. Call it therapy. Call it counseling. Just call it talking to another human being. Just get out there and do it. And don't keep things bottled up. Carla, as somebody who has dealt with people with drug addiction before, whether you spoke to them or them being in your lives, after listening to Frank's story, do you believe he has a chance to get sober again forever? Oh, that's a loaded question. I I think that it's been a few months and Frank is still sober and I have connected with him. He's been struggling. It's been hard. Um, he's trying to not fall into the same mistakes he's made last time, but the average person goes through nine rehabs. So I like to think that Frank is going to be good for life, but he might have another relapse, but at least he knows how to deal with it now. I, I really hope that he does, because to me, listening to him, he almost sounds conscious of the fact that he probably will end up in rehab again, which to me is 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 good in a certain way but at the same time it's troubling because it sounds like he wants to make a lot of amends it sounds like he wants to do the right thing but knows that he's probably going to relapse and i think for him he's so many demons i mean he has no relationship with family um he really only has his sister left and uh his brother that still believe in him but they're also skeptical um and he's had a lot of sadness happen in his life now, do you think that sadness is what drives him to, to make amends for it? Or do you think, like, what is it do you think that drives him to be sober? You know, I think inside it all, Frank is actually quite ambitious and enjoys being accomplished. And I think he really enjoyed the status of a good job and, and making money and being in control of his life. And, you know, being seen as someone that can deal with like life shitty times better than most people i think that drives him i i, I kind of see it from a point of view of you know the same way that he dealt with his business life where he was in control it almost seems like he wants to be in control of his of his addiction but he still wants to have the addiction and, and access it when he wants to yeah that's that's interesting i mean like an addict is always an addict right mm -hmm. i and i feel like when i hear his story and other stories and hearing the type of stuff they've gone through, I, I don't know. I feel like I'd be an addict, too. <laughs> well, I, do. I feel like I can't pass judgment. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it comes down to what do you want more? Do you want to 
uh, you know, ha- have the addiction run you, or do you feel like you're making the decision to, to go through with the addiction? Does do, do you feel like like he, he almost needs the challenge in his life to kick a habit? No, well, maybe that's interesting. That is actually something that I've seen consistent with other addicts is they there is an adrenaline of kicking the habit and gaining control. The Stand Up, Speak Up podcast is made in Canada, produced and hosted by Carla Stevens-Tolstoy, co-producing, editing, and narration by safetynetstudio.com. Copyright 2018. Find us online at standupspeakupapparel.com. If you have a moment, please leave a rating and review on this platform. Thanks for listening to Stand Up, Speak Up. Thanks for joining me this week. My name is Carla Stevens-Tolstoy. My producer has been Dave Wheeler, and we'll talk to you next time. What happens when we play outside? We become healthier, both mentally and physically. We become more creative and more focused. We connect with nature, each other, and ourselves. Let's Take This Outside, a new podcast hosted by me, Marianne Iveson, an aspiring outdoor athlete and nature lover. I speak to athletes, outdoor professionals, and scientists about their connection to nature, how it affects their performance and everyday life. Let's Take This Outside, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, and at ivisonvoice.com slash podcast.